Welcome back to Law's Flaws, the podcast for the New York University School of Law's Journal of Legislation and Public Policy. My name is Jereen Fish, and I serve as the intellectual life editor for the journal. In this episode, our editors Dan Lipkowitz and Michael Beckwith sat down with Professor John P. Collins Jr. to discuss the legal and political features of nominating and confirming federal judges. In particular, their discussion analyzed the nomination and confirmation strategies recently used by the Biden administration in comparison with its predecessors. The conversation concluded with the discussion of Supreme Court vacancies and how the nomination and confirmation of a Supreme Court justice differs from other federal judges. Professor Collins is a visiting associate professor at the George Washington University School of Law. His scholarship focuses on court administration, court reform, and the judiciary. His insights on the judicial nomination process have been featured in Reuters, Bloomberg Law, the New York Law Journal, the National Law Journal, and Law 360, and his most recent article, Judging Biden, appears in the SMU Law Review Forum. We hope you enjoy. Well, Professor Collins, thank you so much for joining the uh, NYU Journal of Legislation and Public Policy today um, to discuss the judicial nomination uh, and uh, confirmation process. We're really excited to have you. Well, thank you for having me. I'm, I'm happy to be here. Great. Uh, so we were thinking maybe a good place for us to start is just to make sure that uh, we and also uh, our listenership are all sort of uh, starting in the, in the same uh, level ground. Maybe you could uh, tell us a little bit, give us a brief walk, walk through of the nomination and confirmation process and what is strictly legally required in the process. Sure, so um, there are no hard and fast requirements in the constitution like there are for the president um, or members of Congress. Um, that said, uh, the specific actors in the political branches who are responsible for identifying, recommending, and appointing judges certainly have um, some criteria in mind. In terms of what creates a vacancy, uh, Congress has, through a series of judiciary acts, created a certain number of seats on every federal district and, cir and circuit court. Uh, since you guys are in uh, New York, uh, my old stomping grounds uh, in the Second Circuit. The Second Circuit has 13 seats uh, authorized by Congress. Under 28 USC Section 371, an active federal judge, so somebody who holds one of those 13 seats, uh, may retire from their office uh, when their service time and age equal 80, so long as they have served for at least 10 years and have achieved an age of at least 65. Um, so that's colloquially referred to as the rule of 80 uh, and taking senior status, um, a form of semi-retirement, which means they stay on the bench and keep hearing cases, uh, but they no longer hold one of those authorized seats. Um, some take senior status immediately, uh, and in their letter to the president, they say, I am, I am uh, uh, retiring effective immediately. Some condition it uh, either on a date in the future uh, or on a successor uh, being confirmed. Um, it's the White House that ultimately chooses the nominee, right? The Constitution vests in the president um, the, the power to uh, appoint judges, um, but also requires the advice and consent uh, of the Senate. So the White House chooses a nominee, um, and then they send it uh, over to the Senate, where it is referred to the Committee of Jurisdiction, which uh, for judicial nominees is, unsurprisingly, the Judiciary Committee. 
um, and the Judiciary Committee holds a hearing, takes a vote on whether to advance the nominee. The nominee then goes to, if the vote advances, uh, the nominee then goes to the floor of the Senate where uh, he or she gets an up or down vote um, and is either confirmed or not confirmed. If they're confirmed, the last step is the signing of the commission by the president, and that's what formally appoints them to their seat. Which many law students are familiar with due to Marbury v. Madison. Yes. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It was a bit of a thorny issue at one point. Yeah. Uh, well, I guess it shows the sort of uh, importance and also, I guess, the politics surrounding judicial appointments uh, even existed back then. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's nothing new. Uh, well, with that sort of legal grounding, maybe we can move on to some of the political factors uh, that really shape the way that judges are nominated and confirmed. Um, yeah, so I guess the first political factor is, well, the first consideration is actually the judges themselves. Do we see kind of a political calculus from judges on when they decide to take senior status? <clears throat> or is it typically just they're between 65 and 80, say, in the state of New York, they're tired of being a full-time, you know, employee of the federal government and they decide? I've had enough. Yeah, the the studies on this have um, been, I'll say, inconsistent, um, and in that some have found some correlation, some have not. I think the most comprehensive one, it studied all of re all retirements between 1970 uh, and 2009, and acknowledged that to the extent political considerations you know, retiring under a particular presidential administration um, played a role, it was far outweighed. Uh, by other personal and institutional uh, considerations, being a certain age, um, uh, their health, um, the burden on the court of creating a vacancy, um, and things like that. Um, and I don't, I'm certain I'm not in a position to dispute any of that, um, but I'll note that I think, you know, because that only considered vacancies created between 1970 and 2009, you know, we're dealing with a different breed of judge now. Um, and for the last 40 years, those selected for judgeships are, you know, go through a much more rigorous selection process. Um, and I think we are likely to see a greater correlation between appointing president and the president in power when you retire um, going forward. Uh, because I don't think, I don't think there are too many um, judges appointed by uh, President Trump who uh, are going to be comfortable um, retiring under a Democratic administration. And I'm, I would imagine the same would be true for those appointed by, by Biden. Now that each side knows who the other side is looking for in replacements, um, there's no more blue slips. There's no more moderation. If, if you are a Republican appointee in Texas and there's a Democratic Senate and a Democratic president, you can no longer sort of have faith that Texas's two Republican senators are going to have any sway over who your replacement is. Um, and so to the extent you were comfortable retiring under a different party because, you know, you felt like senators from the party that appointed you might play a role in, in sort of moderating your successor, you know, that's out the door, at least for now. Yeah. And, and because you mentioned sort of the, the recommendation that senators have traditionally played, I'm really interested in that. Um, particularly, it seems like in the past, uh, there's been, if not legally required, a norm that uh, a president would consult the senators uh, from the state that they were going to nominate the judge from. And, and I know that uh, under Obama's uh, administration, uh, the Senate leadership uh, didn't process any uh, confirmations that home state senators opposed. 
Um, under Trump, it seems like maybe that rule applied to district court judges, but not so much to appellate court judges. Um, and what we've seen thus far with Biden is that um, overwhelmingly the judges that he's nominated have been from either states with two Democratic senators or uh, I think a judge from Puerto Rico where there are no senators uh, whatsoever. Um, so I'm curious, do you think that that norm is sort of on its way out? How is that norm changing? Um, and uh, given sort of the Biden administration sidestepping it, um, how do you think that will play a role as uh, you know openings uh, occur in states where there aren't necessarily just two Democratic senators? Sure, um, and I'm gonna I'm gonna take a step back and just uh, uh, talk briefly about blue slips. Right, your sure. your listeners have probably heard about blue slips in some capacity. They may not know exactly what they are, but they are the norm that you're referring to, and it literally is just a blue slip of paper. Um, that a when somebody is nominated to a seat in a senator's state, uh, the committee sends them a piece of paper and, and you check one of two boxes, support or approve or oppose. Um, and uh, either selecting oppose or simply withholding a blue slip and not returning it at all has in the past been a means to block a nomination. Um, as you noted, when uh, Senator Leahy was the chairman of the Judiciary Committee under Obama. He was a strict adherent uh, to that policy. And if a senator did either did not return it or, or returned a negative blue slip, the person did not get a hearing uh, and, the nominee, and the nomination did not go forward. Um, under Trump, at least initially, the blue slip was adhered to. Um, but if sent Chairman Grassley or Chairman Graham sort of didn't agree or uh, or felt as though the White House had done sufficient consultation with the senators, even if they didn't ultimately pick the senator's preferred candidate, he said, I'm not gonna allow the blue slip to be a pocket veto uh, and I will continue to move those nominees forward. Grassley, it was reported, he did require that the White House show him consultation logs uh, so that they could, they could back up that they had in fact consulted with home state senators, um, but again, consultation with is not acquiescence to, uh, and most of the Democratic senators who were, you know, consulted um, uh, felt as though it was pro forma and that the White House had a preferred candidate and it didn't matter what the senator said, they were going to go with their, with their candidate um, anyway. So in this administration for a while, we didn't know how they were going to treat um, nominees to uh, states with one or two uh, Republican senators who ultimately opposed the nomination. We got our first look at it earlier this year, because uh, at the end of last year, the administration nominated Andre Mathis, a Memphis-based lawyer, to a Sixth Circuit seat in Tennessee, which has two Republican senators. Um, and he had his hearing earlier uh, in January over the objection of Tennessee Senators Marsha Blackburn and Bill Haggerty, who made the same complaint that Democratic senators made during the Trump administration, that the White House called them or sent them a name, but didn't really take their advice, and uh, they weren't meaningfully consulted um, in the process. Chairman Durbin held the hearing anyway. They took a vote. To my surprise, uh, he actually advanced and didn't deadlock uh, because Senator Kennedy voted to advance him. Senator Kennedy from Louisiana is in a similar position. There is a future vacancy in the Fifth Circuit um, in his state uh, in Louisiana. 
um, and and he expressed sympathy. He he acknowledged, I think, to his credit, he acknowledged that that's the way it worked under Trump. That home state senators really had no power over who got nominated. Uh, but now, being on the receiving end of it, you know, was lamenting that it had gone there. Um, and a few senators have spoken back and forth at these committee hearings about doing something about it eventually, but nobody on the Democratic side is interested in doing it now, um, that they're the ones in power um, and, and sort of affirmatively tying one hand behind their own back um, when the other side you know, didn't mind when the shoe was on the other foot. Um, yeah. um, and I guess just one follow-up question uh, on that is particularly with uh, Congressman Clyburn, we've seen a state that has uh, Republican uh, senators and uh, he, I, I, I guess this was for a nomination to the, to the fourth circuit originally, but then it seemed like maybe uh, it switched to the DC circuit, but discussions of Michelle Childs, who now I guess is also a SCOTUS nomination contender, but it seemed like the, there have been other channels of communication with legislators. And we traditionally think of the conversation as occurring between the White House and senators, but maybe there are new modes of communication um, occurring in the Senate nomination process. Do you think that this is sort of uh, an anomalous case given sort of the sway that, that Congressman Clyburn holds, or does this pave the way to maybe um, new political actors influencing the nomination and confirmation process? I think Clyburn is sort of, uh, and an exception because of you know his role in in Joe Biden securing the nomination and the longstanding relationship they've had. Um, but there are states where there are no Democratic senators, and just as a sort of matter of resource allocation, the White House is not really in a position to go canvassing Tennessee for for lawyers. They have to rely on somebody local, and, and in the case of Andre Mathis. Uh, he was first contacted by a Democratic congressman, uh, Congressman Cohen from the Memphis area. So um, in the absence of Democratic senators, um, I think the White House will rely on um, either local congressmen uh, or other outside uh, groups who may have some familiarity with that legal market um, to look for, for uh, potential candidates. I think that's one of the reasons potentially why we haven't seen a nominee to a Kansas-based 10th circuit seat uh, that was, I think it has been vacant for almost a year now. Um, Kansas has no Democratic senators. They only have one congressperson who I believe is in their first term. So there is no infrastructure there to sort of um, to move through the nomination process. There's no senators who have committees set up. Um, and this the, the congressperson has obviously never recommended anyone for um, for a judgeship before. So it's not surprising that perhaps they don't have, um, you know, things in motion as quickly uh, as a state like Colorado to Democratic senators, and they have moved quite quickly um, to, to make nominations to their federal bench. Um, just going back to what you said um, a few moments ago about kind of the breakdown in norms regarding blue slips um, and how it's kind of become this kind of bipartisan bare knuckle politics. Um, and also going back, I know under Harry Reid, Democrats, quote unquote, eliminated the filibuster for lower court nominees. And yet Republicans then did the same for SCOTUS under when Neil Gorsuch was being considered. Um, nonetheless, though, there's this popular narrative that conservatives have, for lack of a better word, won the judiciary um, by being more organized and their voters kind of being more concerned 
about the judiciary as a political issue. Um, how much of that do you think is accurate? How much of it is due to the prominence of organizations such as the Federalist Society, not just in judicial politics, but in our politics as a more general matter versus how much of it's actually kind of a, a hyperbolic mistruth or lack of a fuller story? I, I don't think you can deny that Republicans have had a more coherent and consistent approach to judicial nominations over the last 40 years. Um, starting with Reagan, um, he, he really brought the White House uh, into the judicial nominations fold um, in a way that it hadn't been before. Um, he created this President's Committee on Federal Judicial Selection, um, which in turn brought political and policy considerations into that selection process to a much greater extent uh, than it had been before. And that has been the norm in Republican administrations ever since. Um, and the effect of that is that it, it created a very smooth, streamlined process uh, through which they could identify and, and test and assure themselves of uh, conservative ideological bona fides. Um, and you pair that with their focus on youth. Um, Micah Schwartzman, professor at UVA, and my colleague here at GW, uh, David Fontana, um, wrote an op-ed in the Washington Post uh, last year where they um, emphasized that the top, the, the 25 youngest circuit judges um, since Reagan have all been nominated by Republican presidents, um, many of them in their mid to late 30s. Um, and so when you take that age into account, um, which allows judges to serve for longer, it allows them to build a jurisprudence, to bring their ideas that may start more on the fringe initially, but the longer they're on the bench, the more like-minded colleagues they have on the bench, um, it starts to develop and bring those ideas more into the mainstream. They are deciding more cases. They're speaking at more Federalist Society events and, and other conferences. Um, it, it really has sort of built a, a consistent messaging um, and, and sort of jurisprudential machine in a way that democratic administrations have not, um, have not mirrored. The other thing is it, it credentials um, these judges, because if you look at uh, two of uh, Trump's Supreme Court nominees, Neil Gorsuch and Brett Kavanaugh, they were both nominated to the courts of appeals by President Bush uh, when they were either in their late 30s or early 40s. They got to serve for about a decade before they were nominated to the Supreme Court. And that creates, you know, it's hard to argue that they're not qualified from an experience perspective when you have somebody who's been a sitting appellate judge for, for that long. Um, and, and so they have really done an excellent job in who they're selecting uh, from an ideological standpoint, uh, putting them in the best position to have the longest and most influential careers and giving themselves a, a really deep pool um, of candidates when they get Supreme Court nominees. Um, uh, I mean, Kavanaugh was 53, Gorsuch I think was 48 or around 50, still relatively young by Supreme Court standards, despite having been a sitting judge for 10 years. And ju just to follow up on that, I think that we see sort of this 
ideological uh this the concentration on on having a certain uh uh allowing people to build jurisprudence early uh selecting judges early but it seems like this machine that uh helps uh these political machines that help appoint judges also apply to the actual confirmation process itself um and i was wondering if you could speak a little bit about confirmation hearings which now seem uh like they uh, reveal very little um, and are almost formulaic in, in the way that they proceed. Um, and how much does uh, sort of the White House, for lack of a better word, sort of groom people and train people for these confirmation hearings? Um, and is there any way to sort of break through the monotony of people refusing to answer questions or refusing to, uh, I guess, uh, maybe speak a little bit more about the law and less about their inability to speak about the law. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I mean, I answer your second question first and say it, it doesn't look like it. Um, I mean, uh, the norm, especially during the Trump administration, was just not to answer any questions. I mean, even questions that um, uh, you couldn't even imagine, um, you know, being concerned about the answer. Gorsuch got asked, you know, whether he thought Brown versus Board of Education was rightly decided or whether he agreed with the judgment and his answer was it was a correct decision based on precedent. Um, I mean, it you can't give a more non-answer than that to a, a, a question that I still don't really understand what the objection is to just saying yes. Um, but to get back to your initial questions of how do nominees get prepared, there's a, a, a lot of vetting that gets taken care of before anybody is even nominated, right? Because you don't want um, things coming out at the hearing. You don't want accusations of trying to hide stuff uh, from the senators. So there is a very thorough questionnaire um, that uh, nominees have to fill out and submit to the Senate. And the White House Counsel's Office and the um, Office of Legal Policy over at DOJ work with the nominees to fill that out. Um, and if they're sitting judge, if they're sitting judges, it asks them about decisions they've written, if they're uh, advocates, it asks about um, cases in which they've litigated and briefs they've written, so that somebody who wants to find your writings, your speeches, your judicial decisions, they have all of that, um, that information there. And part of the preparation process is identifying, okay, what in this is going to give the other side fodder um, for, the, uh, for their questioning? Um, and you can see in uh, President Biden's nominees, he's nominated a lot, of a lot of public defenders. So they get asked a lot of questions about their limited civil experience because they are, you know, they are only practicing in the criminal justice space. We saw last week or two weeks ago, um, apparently it was problematic to uh, uh, represent people wrongly convicted of crimes. Um, and that that somehow apparently leads to uh, you know, increased crime somewhere. Uh, so you just sort of look for whatever you think somebody's going to latch on to for a soundbite um, and try and give them the best uh, way to approach it, which is usually to remind them either, you know, I was I, I was affirmed on appeal. It was consistent with this court's precedent. Uh, that was in my role as an advocate. And I understand that the role of a judge is different. And they all, you hear the same answers over and over again. Um, and that's not by coincidence. Sure. I actually have a quick follow-up as well on that. Um, Cause you mentioned 
kind of part of this vetting process is going through past judicial opinions. Is there any point at which experience on the federal bench actually becomes a detriment because there's just such a paper trail? And a second question related to that is, I don't know if there's any study been done on this, but is there almost a politics of judging itself where at the district or appellate court level, people with Supreme Court ambitions are basically trying to not be too controversial in their judging? I mean, that's, that's kind of a loaded question with a number of assumptions, but it's just a curiosity, honestly. Well, I mean, I think traditionally that's the way it was. And that was one of the advantages to um, nominating a sitting judge is you had this paper trail, uh, which hopefully was relatively benign. Um, and so you could say, you could you know, go into the Senate and say, listen, this is somebody who, this is how they approach cases. There's nothing political in here. They follow precedent. You don't have anything to worry about. Um, but recently, uh, you know, Don, Don McGahn, who was the White House counsel and ran judicial nominations under President Trump, sort of flipped the script there. And, you know, he said he wanted the paper trail so that he could have confidence that there were no, you know, no more suitors, um, no more squishes who, you know, once on the bench, um, you know, their true views would come out. And I think you do see um, recently a lot of concurring opinions, dissenting opinions written by judges appointed by Trump um, uh, to the Ninth Circuit and the Fifth Circuit, I think in particular, that to me look like auditions. And listen, I am on your side from a, uh, you know, political policy jurisprudential viewpoint, and I am not afraid to say so. Uh, and I will call out the other side and I will try to, you know, recreate um, the writings of Justice Scalia by, you know, calling my colleagues names and, and trying to be, um, you know, mean and quick-witted. Um, and I, I think they are doing that because they want to get noticed. They want people talking about it and they want to say the next time a Republican president is in power and a Supreme Court vacancy comes up, I've put my money where my mouth is and you don't have to worry about how I'm gonna come out on these issues because I've told you exactly what I think about them in no uncertain terms. And it does seem like to some extent there, at least uh, amongst conservative judges or the, what the Federal Society uh, has been discussing, there's a purity test of sorts where uh, I'm, I'm thinking of a willingness to overturn Roe um, or similar ideas of certain cases that uh, it seems like judges are saying they're wrong for the sense for the purpose of asserting that they're on a certain side. Um, have we seen that amongst, uh, I guess, uh, I guess more uh, less conservative, more liberal justices, or do you think that some sort of purity test would be a good thing to have on the opposing side? Uh, either, I mean, even if it comes down to just saying Brown versus Board was <laughs> decided correctly. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there. If there is that kind of test, um, at least under the current administration, um, it, it certainly is not as outspoken um, as it is under uh, conservative administrations. Uh, they all sort of openly talk about being originalists, being textualists, um, and I think you know all but eight of Trump's fifty-four circuit judges had ties to the Federalist Society. I mean, there certainly are more clearly delineated check marks um, uh, for conservative nominees than there are 
for for more liberal ones. I, I'm sure there is something in 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 the way they are screening candidates that puts them at ease about certain things. I don't think it's quite as homogenous as you know membership in ACS um, or or having just been a a, a public defender. Um, but I think I think the proxy for that, perhaps from the Democratic side, is is professional experience. Um, fewer prosecutors, fewer um, big law attorneys, uh, people who have uh, uh, defended civil rights, voting rights, uh, indigent defendants, um, things of that nature, which you know perhaps aligns with their their vision of of their ideal judge. Um, and as a, a bit of a follow-up on that, I know you mentioned kind of textualism, um, judges trying to channel Scalia in their opinions. Um, it seems like that is part of what Dan referred to as kind of a purity test among conservatives. Is there a competing ideology on the other side, kind of a living constitutionalism? I know that's kind of become a dirty word in judicial circles. And do you think it's something that Biden should look for in his, in his nominees? I think also, if I'm remembering correctly, I think Senator Kennedy during many confirmation hearings has sort of complained that Biden nominees aren't able to put forth uh, sort of uh, an equivalent to textualism as Trump judges did as well. So it seems like maybe that's a, he's setting them, it seems like he's setting them up for a trap. Uh, but uh, I am curious whether there is like an equivalent sort of uh, line of thought. It doesn't appear like there is. I mean, at least none that anyone is willing to talk about openly. And because in response to Senator Kennedy's questions and questions from other senators about the same thing. They all say, I have no judicial philosophy. I follow precedent. Um, Kagan said, we're all textualists now, um, but sort of nothing beyond that, nothing to sort of be so bold as to say, I'm a living constitutionalist and here's what that means. And here's how I interpret cases. And here's why that's consistent with, you know, my view um, of the constitution and, and sort of where it fits in our, uh, in, the, in the larger scheme of things. Um, and I don't, you know, I don't know what the ideal opposing judicial philosophy is, but I do, you know, part of me wishes that they would have one. Um, and I think largely because you have to offer a competing vision to what's out there. Um, I think, you know, you, you sort of asked about the judicial wars earlier. And I think one area where they have clearly won is in messaging. Um, you know, they have defined their view as, you know, either originalist or textualist or strict constructionist or strict constitutionalist. Um, they're sort of all different variations of that same idea of strict and true adherence to the Constitution. Well, how do you argue with that? Um, who, who's looking for judges who aren't going to be faithful to the Constitution? Um, so that's what's out there taking up all the space. It's painted as this one true way. And the failure to offer a competing vision just further serves to legitimize it um, as, you know, yes, we are all sort of operating um, in the world where originalism is the best way to do things or textualism is the best way to do things because nobody on the other side is saying, no, there is a better way and here's why it's better and, um, you know, articulating it in that way. Yeah, and sp speaking of sort of... Uh... Uh, strategies as far as messaging goes, but also putting um, uh, judges on the bench. This is something that you've uh, studied and written about extensively. Um, and both from 
the perspective of uh, getting judges uh, confirmed, but also in the, like you were discussing sort of this broader messaging battle of uh, really ins inspiring confidence in judges that, uh, that, are, that are more liberal. What sort of strategies has the Biden administration um, applied that has uh, distinguished this administration from its predecessors? Um, there's, there's, a, there's a lot to unpack there. Um, <laughs> I'll start with the pace. Um, President Obama, when he took office in 2009, had a near supermajority in the Senate. He had three circuit judges confirmed in his first year. President Biden, or President Trump, uh, in 2017, set the record at 13, um, and President Biden moved at a similarly fast pace, seeing 12 confirmed in, in 2021, two were subsequently confirmed in early January, um, uh, giving him a total of 14 in sort of his first true calendar year, um, if you want to shift the window there. Um, so he is moving at a much quicker pace um, than, than, than previous administrations. Um, his judges are for the most part younger. Right now they track roughly the same um, age as, uh, as Donald Trump's, um, which is six, seven years younger than, than uh, Obama's um, at this point, uh, because Obama approached it as let's take things down a notch, right? Let's be conciliatory, let's try to work together. I think one of the ways he did that was by nominating early on so many sitting district judges who had already spent time on the bench uh, and they were older, they had the records, right? The moderate records, a lot of former prosecutors, uh, but it also meant that they were older, people in their late 50s and 60s, early 60s, rather than you know early 40s, which is what we're seeing, um, which is what we're seeing now. They are also extremely diverse. Now, where sort of Obama struggled from an age perspective, he excelled from a diversity perspective. He appointed more women, um, uh, uh, more um, members of the Black, Latino, uh, AAPI, um, LGBTQ communities, um, really uh, uh, much more diverse than than even prior Democratic administrations, and certainly more diverse than than prior um, Republican administrations. Um, the big the biggest difference here with with Biden is the professional diversity. So many former public defenders, so many more civil rights attorneys, people who just had never were never even in the calculus um, for judgeships before. Um, and that's, that's important from a messaging perspective, both to um, law students like yourselves, thinking about what careers uh, you can go into if you, uh, you know, are interested in a ju judgeship um, down the line, to litigants, um, understanding that those decision-making bodies reflect a broader view um, and a broader experience, um, and not all coming from either large firms or U.S. attorney's offices. Um, as well as the actual parties themselves, gives them greater confidence. Criminal defendants knowing that, you know, somebody on their three-judge panel uh, spent time representing uh, a criminal defendant. It doesn't mean all of a sudden criminal defendants are going to start winning habeas petitions um, and motions to suppress, but I think it will give them more confidence that 
the decision was well-reasoned because it took into account somebody who knows what it's like to represent somebody like me in this kind of case. And, uh, you know, the, the procedural and substantive hurdles that you face um, and just making sure that that is being considered by the court um, as a whole. So that really, I think, is the defining characteristic of what this administration is doing and, and what really separates, separates it apart um, from past democratic administrations. And that's why I think um, that uh, Judge Jackson is, is going to ultimately get the nomination to Justice Breyer's seat because she is of the big three, she is the only former public defender. And it would just seem like the icing on the cake for this administration who has put such an emphasis on getting public defenders on the bench to put one on the Supreme Court, which hasn't had one since Thurgood Marshall retired in the early 90s. And how much do you, of sort of uh, emphasis on both demographic but also professional diversity do you think is influenced by Biden's own experience on the Judiciary Committee? Um, I mean, it seems like that gives him a distinct uh, sort of institutional knowledge of how the process works, but maybe also would influence uh, sort of his choices deciding who to nominate uh, and a greater philosophy on how the judiciary should be comprised. Yeah, um, I mean, he certainly understands the, the legacy that a president's um, judicial nominees will, will leave. Um, those judges, the judges that he appoints will serve long after his administration um, is over. Uh, and his experience as a chairman on the Judiciary Committee, I think, has, has cemented in him that he, that he understands the long-term um, long effects there. He's also a former public defender, right? And so he knows uh, that people who, who worked in his position had no path to the judiciary under prior administrations. And so I think rebalancing that especially in light of all of the folks who were appointed in the past administration. I mean, he, he, always, rephrases, he always frames it as a rebalancing. Um, and I think that's central to, um, to counterbalancing all of the corporate folks, all of the political Department of Justice type folks that were appointed um, under the last administration um, and making sure that his political base, which is now more attuned to it, largely because of, as a reaction to what the last administration did, sees people like them getting appointed because it's, it's smart politics. Yeah, and one more, one more question on this subject, because we do want to talk about, uh, you brought up uh, Judge Jackson, we do want to talk about the recent uh, Supreme Court vacancy. But uh, before we, we pivot to that issue, um, I was curious, given the sort of uh, novel approach that Biden is taking in nominating judges. He has faced also novel sort of hurdles and obstacles um, compared to his predecessors. It seems that uh, I, if I'm correct, not a single judge has been confirmed through unanimous uh, through a unanimous uh, approval under his administration, which is uh, essentially unheard of. Um, and he only has a very slim uh, majority in the Senate. So what sort of tactics has the Biden administration uh, in coordination with the Senate uh, utilized in order to ensure that they can actually get judges confirmed and, and put on the bench? So one, I think they have relied heavily on recommendations from home state, blue, um, from blue state uh, senators, 
right? There are a lot of vacancies out there. Most of them are from states with Democratic senators. So the people that they are recommending to the White House are the kind of people that their caucus is going to support. Um, and so that has helped um, ensure that uh, the nominees that they end up sending will get all 50 votes. Um, they have uh, they have moved quickly, right, to try and take advantage of the of the slimmest of majorities that they have, and we we have we have started to to see you know some of the risk early this year. Senator Lujan, um, you know, had a stroke. Senator Feinstein has has missed uh, committee votes with with uh, illness to herself and her, and um, her family, and so it is important to continue to move quickly because you you don't know what's going to happen tomorrow or later today. Um, but we do know what will happen if uh, Republicans regain a majority through whatever means. And it is that the ju judges will not be confirmed, um, <laughs> at least not, not the White House's preferred, uh, preferred judges. Um, I also think they have sent, you know, really highly qualified um, nominees. And I say highly qualified in sort of the traditional sense one of the ways in which the administration does not differ so much from its predecessors is there is a lot of their, their candidates largely come from you know top 14 Ivy League law schools. Um, many have had um, you know appellate or Supreme Court clerkships, um, but that is a way of of if that is appealing to you know to certain members to make sure that um, you know, they, that they have confidence that these nominees are, are well credentialed and competent and able to do the job. Um, it has helped keep things moving. So I'm um, turning to the Supreme Court vacancy that's recently arisen. Um, I know we've been talking a lot about the political and legal factors and qualifications and considerations that go into judicial nominations more generally. Um, is there any noticeable difference in which factors are considered when dealing with the Supreme Court versus an appellate court or a district court? Well, for one, there's nowhere else to go. Um, there's no, you don't have to worry about um, elevating them further. They are, they are at the peak. Um, and so I think that makes a difference. There are only nine of them, nine seats, right? And just to get one seat um, is, a, is a major, um, you know, lucky really outcome. Um, and so they wanna make sure that they get it right because it's not as though we're appointing 50, 60, 70, judges across, you know, various regional circuits or districts, you know, this is, this is the Supreme Court and we may only get one seat and we got to make sure we get it right. Their decisions are going to get way more attention than your, than your average circuit judge's decision. Um, and it is, as we were talking about earlier, it's an opportunity to articulate a vision, right? A particular jurisprudential vision that you can signal to lower courts this is how we should be approaching this. This is the idea that we're sympathetic to. These are the kind of cases we want to hear. And obviously, that's more effective when you are in the majority, because when you're in the when you're in the minority, uh, you're going to get bound by whatever the majority says. Um, but it's an opportunity to start. Right? Think about where conservatives were, um, you know, 40 years ago, complaining about um, you know uh, all the the the, the Warren courts' liberal decisions. Um, and sort of being reactionary to that, you know, sort of the shoe is on the other foot now. And it's an opportunity to start laying the groundwork for whatever the future um, core of, of Democratic appointed judges is going to look like. 
um, and their sort of vision for um, vision for the law. So uh, I think those are those are the biggest differences um, between your sort of average circuit court nominee and 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 the Supreme Court. Um, yeah. So kind of a, a quick follow up to that. I know you mentioned the the Warren Court, and one thing that we've talked a lot about prior judicial experience already uh, during this interview. However. It seems that's kind of a more recent development uh, that you want a lot of judicial experience. Um, I mean, there's Abe Fortas, there's William Douglas, Byron White, Earl Warren, among others that kind of had no or little judicial experience before being nominated to the high court. Um, beyond just kind of having a paper trail to avoid like a suitor situation, what do you think has been kind of the, the catalyst for this development? And do you think it's a good thing? Because there there is a criticism. It's it's one of my criticisms um, <laughs> that spending a lifetime on the bench kind of insulates judges from a knowledge of the politics that is part of the legislative process. And when you're adjudicating on laws, it probably is a good thing to have some experience in them getting made. Yeah, um, I think part of it is, and I'll caveat this with the, the sort of shift that we noted recently that folks like politicians, academics and sort of activist or other practicing attorneys, they carry a lot of baggage. Um, and, you know, in the old days when these things were not as politicized and were not covered um, to death, you could probably get away with that, um, but not now. Um, every detail of these, uh, whoever the nominee is, every detail of their life um, is gonna be scrutinized. Every client they've ever represented every tweet they've ever sent, you know, all of that stuff um, is going to come out. So generally speaking, right, you're looking for, um, you're looking for as few roadblocks um, as possible. Maybe it's a little bit different now that the filibuster has been nuked uh, because you no longer have to get 60 votes. Um, if you have enough on your side, you can get by with a bare minimum and maybe that will be the trend um, you know, going forward, and who knows, you might see somebody uh, uh, like a, you know, a Ron DeSantis um, or some other, uh, you know, politician who has a legal background find themselves in a seat because if you have the Senate and the presidency, who's going to stop you? Um, but at least before uh, the filibuster for Supreme Court nominees was um, was nuked in the last administration, you did have to, you know, in, you did have to sway somebody. Um, from the other side. And that was easier to do um, when you didn't have somebody who um, you know, had all of this baggage. Um, and that's why I think you've seen so many people, right, the either sitting circuit judges and particularly circuit judges from the DC circuit, a lot of former Supreme Court clerks, it has become a much more narrow class of folks who are eligible for this kind of position because they are less vulnerable to, um, to attack from from a traditional qualifications, from an experience um, kind of perspective, but it is very limiting. And it does, you know, those are people who all sort of have for the most part, a, a very similar lived experience um, that is not, uh, uh, you know, common. Um, and, I, and that certainly comes out, I think, in the way that they, that they approach cases. Along those same lines, uh it seems that most of the nominees, if not all of the nominees, have a very similar educational background as well. Um, and maybe that arises from the positions that they've had beforehand. I think uh, almost all the 
Supreme Court justices, with maybe the exception of, of Justice Thomas, generally hire their clerks from uh, a few select schools. Uh, do you think that it uh, is ultimately, I guess, how do you think uh, the fact that Supreme Court justices generally come from, you know, Harvard, Yale, Stanford, how has that impacted both the, the philosophy on the bench? Do you think that's a good thing? Do you think that that is uh, sort of siloing the voices and, and legitimate uh, sort of judicial discourse that should be going on uh, at the highest court in the land? Yeah, I, you know, you, you have people who are all sort of, you know, they're being taught by the same professors. Um, uh, they, they are sort of building their, you know, very narrow and limited alumni networks. Um, and yeah, it does. It's, um, I think it is, it is problematic and it is siloing. Um, and you know, I, I'll, I'll give the conservatives credit on this. I think more so than just Justice Thomas, that they do tend to hire law clerks outside of the, of, you know, Harvard, Yale, Stanford, NYU, Columbia. Um, but not just from any schools, right? It's from schools like BYU or Notre Dame um, that have, or Pepperdine, that, you know, have strong conservative student bodies. Um, but it is, you know, it, it does sort of open up um, and create opportunities for people from different schools. And I wish the, the more liberal justices would, um, you know, would follow suit. And, and, and recognize that, you know, the top students at, at other schools um, are sort of just as capable of, of, um, of doing that job. Because again, now that, that sort of broadens the network, right? And it broadens the, the perspectives of the folks who are, who are doing that job. Um, and I generally think that that's, um, that that's a good thing. Um, but uh, yeah, it's, it, you know, um, Judge Posner, when he retired, he wrote this. He wrote a book a couple of years ago, and, and he was interviewed about it. And he said, you know, he was asked if he thought the nine Supreme Court justices uh, currently on the bench at the time were the nine best lawyers um, in in the country. And he said, no. Best one hundred, no. Best one thousand, no. Best ten thousand, well, he'll give them that. But his point was that there are plenty of qualified people qualified to do the job who don't just come from. Um, you know, Harvard, Yale, and 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 the like, um, and that it, it it is sort of doing the court a disservice to reflect to reflect only um, only that background. Um, in kind of a similar vein, talking about how now or broad kind of the the network and potential Supreme Court nominees are, um, Biden did promise on the campaign trail um, to nominate a black woman as his next Supreme Court justice. Trump similarly promised to nominate a woman to replace Justice Ginsburg. Um, do you think there's any impact on these kind of open promises on public perceptions of the court or kind of given what Judge Posner said, kind of there are just so many qualified individuals. And also up until Thurgood Marshall, there was still, you know, this kind of racialized and gendered qualification process. You had to be a white man to get on the court. Um, is it just an acknowledgement of the reality that courts are political and kind of race and gender are also political in, yeah, that in the tailed off in a, yeah, in the nomination <laughs> process. Yeah, I, I mean, the president, a, 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 a political actor is the one choosing who he gets to put on the court. So there has always been 
um, you know, an element of politics to it. And I think, you know, from a political perspective, it was smart for Reagan. Reagan made the campaign promise to put the first woman on, and it was, you know, smart politics for him to um, to appoint someone. And he was still able to appoint a woman that that fit within his sort of preferred, you know, preferred view of of you know who a justice should be. Um, and so I don't think there's anything um, there's anything new here uh, uh, or or anything anything wrong, especially when you look at who, um, you know, he said, all right, I'm going to, I'm going to appoint uh, a black woman. You look at this list um, of black women, lawyers and judges, uh, and they are all extremely qualified and highly credentialed from whatever approach you want to take. Um, and, and, and I think, you know, it's consistent with the administration's view that representation matters. Court has never had a black woman justice in um, in the you know centuries that it's that it's existed, it is long overdue, um, and it is as you said, it's no different than the the reverse where the class was limited to white male friends of the president uh, for every seat up until um, uh, Thurgood Marshall and, and Justice O'Connor. Um, so nothing new here. I don't think it. I don't think it really hurts anything from a credibility standpoint. People will complain about it, but I don't think their complaints are really in good faith. And one Not final- if they want to be consistent. <laughs> uh, and one final question uh, before we let you go. We really appreciate uh, you talking with us today. It's been incredibly elucidating um, and a really great conversation. Um, but uh, you're a, you're a, astute uh, observer of the court of the nomination process, the confirmation process, what sort of things are you looking for uh, as the Biden administration goes into its uh, second year of nominating judges, uh, trying to confirm judges? What sort of things should we be paying attention to, both at, I guess, the Supreme Court level, but at the appellate and district level as well? Well, I mean, things have, I think, understandably slowed down as the administration is searching for its um, Supreme Court nominee. I'm, you know, he promised to uh, announce a nominee by the end of February. We are getting very close to the end of February, uh, but I'm sure we will have that nominee soon. I would expect that process to go smoothly um, and relatively quickly, um, but I would hope that they continue to announce and move uh, the nominations for the many other seats uh, that are either currently vacant or are awaiting um, a confirmed successor to become vacant. Um, there are around 20 or so uh, vacancies um, that don't have a confirmed replacement to it yet. 16 or so don't even have a nominee. Um, and there's another roughly 20 or so Democratic appointed judges, circuit judges, um, who are eligible to retire uh, or will become eligible before the end of this year. Um, and so we could see even more vacancies, um, but they, you know, I'd like to see them pick up the pace um, of making nominations. And I'd like to see them start filling some of these seats in red states that have been outstanding since last spring, like a seat in Louisiana, the seat in Kansas, um, uh, uh, among others. So that's what I'm looking for to see how quickly they get this machine restarted once the Supreme Court confirmation is done um, and to see how aggressive they get um, outside of their comfort zone uh, and in, in seats 
um, in either red or purple states. Because so far, as you noted early on, they have shied away and they've been able to do that because they have so many other seats um, in states with Democratic senators. But as those as that number starts to decrease, I'd like to see them uh, start moving forward on some of these other seats. Well, we'll be watching that as well. Um, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. This was great.